<laughs> oh boy, Drake is Drake is on his last leg. Drake, are you dying? What's happening? Yeah, yeah no, I, I'm dying of something. I'm not sure what it is. I have no idea when Dev starts on this. Oh, me neither. Is it now? It can't be now. There's no way. Wait, it's coming up. Okay, hold on. Okay. Places. Places. The history of film. That battle who even when the lights go dim. From James Cagney to Nosferatu and stunts that shock you. And dirty, dirty tricks to your made. From wings to Top Gun, movie stars and no ones. Romantic crazy fans that leave no real a ton. Hollywood is still from history in Hollywood. They chase the Oscar, but it's all a sham, just like Shaq and Kazam. All your dreams can come true. History, the history of film, all of it made for you. Welcome to Film History, the History of Film. Oh, God. We are here with. Part two of Marlon Brando, uh, which shouldn't surprise you because the last one was part one. So here we are with part two. I'm I'm excited about this one. I'm excited about this one. I, this one came together really well. I think it's a very interesting story. We're gonna get real Broadway today. We're gonna get real actory today. Ooh, lovely. Mm-hmm. I'm excited. Yeah, yeah. This is gonna be Brando's Broadway <laughs> years. Uh, the 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 just fucking quick success that he was he kind of just skyrocketed immediately exploded on broadway everybody was immediately in love with this guy and uh it's a very interesting tale because you know as we were talking about in part one people do widely consider marlon brando as the greatest actor ever you know a lot of people really do think that uh you know right there with Lawrence olivier stuff like that and this uh, it, it definitely reflects when you talk about his Broadway career and how quickly he caught on. Um, people just really immediately realized this guy was a thing, you know. And it's it's interesting today the tale. It just uh, his his whole backstory about Broadway involves so many important people, so many important key events, big like cornerstones of acting and. Even you know filmmaking and Broadway, like this guy was in the, um, you know, like ground fucking zero of like modern day Broadway, in my opinion. Like he was, I, I think I said in the first episode, but I think he brought acting on Broadway into the modern era. That's what I'll say, and that's what this story today is all about. Last ah. we left our hero. Oh, excellent. I love this. <laughs> Marlon Brando was born in the quiet dirt of Omaha, Nebraska in 1924. His childhood was turbulent. Growing up with a father. <laughs> I, I, quiet dirt sticker. I love how you call it quiet dirt of Omaha, Nebraska. <laughs> Not like fertile, rich, breadbasket soil that provides all of our country's food or like rolling golden hill. Like, no, nah, no, nah, quiet yeah, dirt. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, it's like quiet dirt. fucking some small town in Kansas City or something. Like. Look, you know what? To put to put that into perspective, I guess what I mean is compared to being a huge movie star, you know, these are the early 
early days. It was quiet in the, in the quiet dirt. You know? dirt. I got <laughs> nothing going on around there except dirt. And I can't wait does. for yeah. the loud dirt. That's my. That's really what I'm looking for. <laughs> All right, Sunday, Sunday, Sunday. The loud dirt of Omaha, Nebraska. Yeah, like those farmers are like, "Damn, son, you got that dirt is loud." Ooh, Damn. I see them crowds coming in. That's some, <laughs> that corn is loud, bro. <laughs> Hell yeah. The loud dirt is what you grow <laughs> weed in. Oh, very true. Very, very hey. true. Damn. Bro. Is that the name of our weed growing movie? <laughs> loud, loud Dirt. dirt. Loud Dirt. <laughs> I like that. That's definitely the name of a band. There should be. <laughs> but Marlon was not in the loud dirt. He was in the quiet dirt of <laughs> Omaha. And, uh, <laughs> his childhood was very turbulent, growing up with a father who didn't care and a mother who ran the local theater scene but was also very fond of the local bar scene, <laughs> frequently having to be pulled off a bar stool by Marlon and his two sisters. After being expelled from high school for being too rad and washing out of military school for being even more rad, Marlon decided to follow in his sister's footsteps and move out to the big city, New York City to be exact. The Big Apple, baby. He began to get plugged into the acting scene in the Big Apple and the, Mar- and the Marlon Brando that we all recognize began to form. Yeah, that's the, that's the recap of part one. Definitely go listen to it if for some reason you're listening to part two and not part one yet. Yeah, that's, Which, that's uh, been a problem we've had in the past. Yeah. <laughs> if you People are listening to dirt. part two instead of part one, how ballsy are you? Like that is. Right. <laughs> I'm just, just raw dog in film history. Yeah. They're like, like they're it. like I'm confident nothing interesting happened in the quiet dirt section of this of this <laughs> of this story. They're all like, yeah, we did title it the quiet dirt. Usually the no. things get good in the middle to the end of their life with Hollywood stars. <laughs> So he just sat in the beginning. It's all trauma. (laughs) (laughs) But uh, I'm going to do, you know, now that we've skipped ahead a few years here, I'm going to do another, a little, uh, when are we? When are we? When are we? So, (laughs) back in time. Uh, we are in 1943, probably a year we've covered, to be honest, but uh, I'm definitely going to cover it maybe in a different way here. At this point, we've covered 1943. Every year, you know? Yeah, I mean, at this point, we've, especially if it's 30s and 40s, we've been around here. We've been even around. 20s, you know, <laughs> we've been around. Shit, we've gone back to the 1800s at this point, yeah. you know, uh, and, and then 1995. <laughs> 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 or whenever the hell Waterworld was. Yeah. <laughs> Let me guess. There is a war going on in 1943. Yes, that is the most important thing about 1943 is World War II. I mean, that is basically the the every headline, the newspaper. So, you know, December of 1942, Pearl Harbor happens. So, 1943, the uh, the boys decided to get to get going. You know, the American boys are now. Uh, putting their feet on the ground, and we here, we here, baby, we're here with the with the red, white, and blue flying, <laughs> and we're coming in to save y'all's asses, damn it, from the Nazis <laughs> and the Japanese. And uh, so World War II is raging, uh, mainly in North Africa and Italy around this time. And remind me one day we'll do a, a history of war, war history one day. I would I love to tell that. my grandfather's stories. I love that. World yeah. War II history. It's fucking insane. Yeah. 
Yeah, man. My grandfather was in the Second Ranger Battalion. He was there for this entire fucking war from in Europe? from North Africa. Yeah, he was in Europe. He was he went from North Africa all the way to Bastogne. Oof. And yeah, he was a captain by D-Day. He went across uh, Point du Hoc in D-Day. Oh my god. Yeah. Yeah, and, dude. Uh, he was he was I, I do not live up to my grandfather. <laughs> and this how, uh, this whole thing was a how heartbreaking. How heartbroken is he to see what his sons become or grandsons become? <laughs> playing a Nazi right in a movie. It. He's like, "You fucking traitor." <laughs> Can't believe it. <laughs> and and so this whole thing was a sequel to the First World War? How would that work out? Yeah, this was this was like the big sequel. This okay. was like uh, after World War 1, they really got a budget for this okay. thing. You know what I mean? <laughs> like <laughs> World War 1 really sold well, so World War 2 they threw all the money at it, you know. Well, there wasn't a lot of press coverage of World War 1. <laughs> right. Everybody right. only talked about World War 2. You almost see World War 1 in the news. <laughs> <laughs> Lots okay. of money in marketing yeah, you know yeah. it had all the big uh, stars <laughs> great all the big effects. stars are involved <laughs> yeah. great special we effects had, like, airplanes and submarines and stuff like, for this one <laughs> like i bet you could even name the guy who played the villain in world war one you know what i mean like it no just way wasn't, yeah no it way. just wasn't uh, it, it wasn't bringing out the big names you know all but the boy big names did that guy yeah that that guy in the late 30s and and mid 40s, man, with a little mustache, he really made a turn as a very bad villain. You know, yeah. there was a couple uh, of them, wasn't just him. Yeah, yeah. yeah. There was that We're gonna talk about Japan. one. There was a yeah. fuck face from Russia. You know. Yeah, man. You <laughs> fuck face from Russia is all you need to know. Yeah, dude, you had fucking Mussolini. Like, this was the year that Mussolini was, like, hung up in the fucking streets. The Japanese and the Russians killed more than the Nazis anyways. They just didn't do it as cruelly. They killed them in war and just had, like, execution squads instead of, you know. (laughs) That's the most shocking thing about the Nazis is their camps, which is fucking horrific. But, you know, it's just like, that's, of course, that's the marketing. That's what made the trailer. (laughs) <laughs> that's right. That's right. No, no one knows marketing like the Nazis, you know. So, <laughs> they took it Rex from us. Gonna get into that here. They got it from us. Edward Bernays. He's a Freud's yep. nephew. He wrote a book called Propaganda I, in 1912 or something. I can't wait for that episode. We're gonna get so stoned for that episode. No doubt about it. That's the history of advertising. That's how advertising came to be in the world, but it started in corporate America in the Roaring Twenties, and it was okay. used. Edward Bernays' book was used as like the playbook and the manual for all these big companies, and they started using those tactics. And it wasn't until after World War II that we started calling it public relations instead of propaganda because the Nazis used his same book as a playbook and they called it propaganda so the term propaganda got a really bad negative connotation by being associated with the Nazis and then uh, yeah now it's public relations so anytime you see PR think Nazi <laughs> well, you know what's funny about that, Dev? 1943 when are we is a year that a little Nazi propaganda came out uh, while we were over here making movies like For Whom the Bell Tolls, the Nazis, old Josef Goebbels, I don't know how to, Goebbels, I think, uh, he made a movie about the Titanic what? that came out this year called The Titanic, and it was basically a propaganda film about how stupid Americans are for making this like big boat that sank in the water. I so, don't remember before- that on James Cameron's IMDb. <laughs> Before Leonardo DiCaprio, there was the Nazis. 
<laughs> just in general. Yeah. Instead of like, they just see Rose and, and what's his face on the door at the end, and then there's just some German in a boat passing by, like, yeah, you idiots. Uh, yeah, you should have taken a U boat. Nah, that's. That would be funny. The U boat just pops up next to him, looks U-boat, around, yeah. and goes back down. Sinks the Titanic. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> the Titanic was sunk by a U boat. But this first. is this is the year. This is the uh, the North African campaign. Italy, the Battle of Stalingrad happened this year. Uh, Guadalcanal, yeah. This the was uprising the year of Warsaw. The, the war changed. The tide of the war yes. changed. Yeah, Arguably this is the year because became, of Stalingrad. Shot, you know, uh, uh, fuck the Russians, but shout out to them for literally like stopping yeah. Hitler. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, that that shit was nuts, dude. The Russians were not fucking around. They were shooting their uh, retreaters yeah. at Stalingrad. And, you know, this was also the year with all the dudes being gone, with all the boys being over there, um, this was the year that you see, like, Rosie the Riveter. You know, you got the women working in the factories, building everything. Uh, the Great Depression basically officially ends this year because uh, employment rates skyrocket. I mean, everybody everybody gets to work, you know. And I, it's to build fucking tanks and planes to kill Nazis. Uh, and that's, that is what America was doing at this point. This is where you see, you know, uh, it, no one's wearing, like, nylon and shit because they're sending it over there to Europe to make parachutes. No one is wearing, like, all the, 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 the victory gardens where everyone turns their house into, like, a war effort, you know. America, this was 1943. This was around the time where America was really fucking doing World War II. You, you know, know, this is... Uh, what really oh, go ahead. What won the war, What the thing about America that won the war was our ability to make shit. So, like, it was the assembly line, the invention of the right. assembly line, and to be able to right. turn out, like, these tanks and plane engines so quickly. Like, it, it took one month... For the British to do what we did in like an afternoon, as far as quota, yeah. and that's like a real fact thing. So like the leaders of the army and the president went to um, Ford and GM and Chrysler and got them onboarded to be to design the factories and the manufacturing lines to be able to produce all this stuff, so that we could jump in at full force and we could be awesome and American excellence. So. Yeah, man. This was uh, it, uh, I don't know. They were I'll say to it. This was the last time. They won the war. Whatever. Good job, guys. Yeah. <laughs> this this was a la- this was the last time America was like kind of a good country. Yeah. Even though they they definitely hey, had their problems. I 100% agree but, uh, with that. <laughs> how dare you both? <laughs> yeah, and then we it's still then we the spiraled best country into in the world. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, sure, 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 sure. Yeah, yeah, after, because yeah. this um, is the last time we had an objective evil to fight. After this point, they're like, yeah. "All right, who, what's the what's the next nation we can destabilize for just for the fuck yeah, of yeah, it? yeah, 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 yeah." <laughs> well, a lot of the communism uh, scare really fucked us for several generations, but you know. Yeah, you're Patton right. Said, Let's we did keep have going. a clear evil, and that Pat- is always. Patton. A good thing to like focus on and prevent, you know, it, yeah. it helps with everyone being on the righteous side and on the right yeah. side. And this was uh, this was also the year. If you're a fan of a league of their own, this is the year that happened. The All American Girls Professional Baseball League started this year because all the dudes were over there not playing baseball anymore. Uh, and so the women started their own league that took over for the men for a while, which I don't understand why the fuck it didn't stick. I don't understand why there's not a uh, major league baseball for women, but whatever. It's really interesting um, that like there's there's only like 
out of like the big three sports in America, there's only a, a women's basketball team. There's no women's football team. There's yeah. no women's baseball no. team. Uh, yeah. There oh, no, is. There's... They're just not popular. The women's football team is called the Lingerie Football League. It's yeah, exactly. I actually, it's literally. I'm good so... friends with one of the players who was like one of the MVPs of the league. Uh, in <laughs> soccer, football, women's soccer yeah. is really fucking popular. Women's soccer. Yeah. And of course, like yeah. tennis. Yeah. In volleyball. <laughs> yeah. Women's soccer is actually like the one that America's good at, actually. But, oh, yeah. Uh, our soccer team no, is great, but, I... but soccer is not huge yeah. in America in general. Is no, it? and I but I agree with you, and I don't. I really don't understand Major League Baseball for women. Just sounds like a fucking thing that should happen. It's called you know? softball. They were. They have it. Nah, it's that's the thing. See, that's the, the thing. We have women's version for it, but we either put them in their underwear or give them the softball. You know. Yeah. <laughs> I'm. Uh, I'm still impressed about them sliding when skirts. That's that's fucking ridiculous and crazy. Yeah, Part of me yeah, wants to be like, yeah. bring that back, but then I'm like, ah, that really fucking hurts. Never mind. <laughs> that's a that's a great movie. Everybody should go watch that shit. That's the, you know, that's not crying at baseball. Uh, that was Tom Hanks was eating babies and shit. But uh, <laughs> this is all. I've never heard of either of those this movies. Is... I've never heard of this baseball one or the Tom Hanks eats babies. No, he eats, <laughs> he eats the babies in the baseball It's one. the same movie. <laughs> yeah, it's the same movie. Yeah. You never heard of A League of Their Own? No, no. Oh, thought, shit. Okay, yeah. You said League, and my, my mind went to League of Extraordinary Gentlemen, and I was like, I don't remember that playing into World War II, but it could have. It's been no, weird. no. Yo, go watch a league of their own. Actresses, these fucking girls. Yeah. And I mean, Tom Hanks, obviously, too. He's great, but like, hit the team. Like, yeah, what? Madonna, Rosie O'Donnell. Um, yeah. There was, oh, God, yeah, I can't the, remember tank, the least. Tank Girl. What was her name? Um. There's several, and I just can't think of the. God damn it, the lead so, girl's name. Yeah, this was uh, a 1992 Jean, Jean, film. Jeannie, Gina Davis. Gina Davis. Lori, yeah, Lori Petty. Yeah, Madonna. Yeah, dude, this movie's great. And yeah, it was basically, uh, like I said, like World War II. Uh, all the dudes are over there in war, and all our baseball players are gone. And so it was this like women's league of baseball. And it's just all about how they treated them and shit. They had, they were like forced to wear like short skirts and shit while they were sliding bases. Yeah, pretty ridiculous. Seems ridiculous. Yeah, yeah. But also, this is also kind of oh. hot. You know? <laughs> <laughs> it was hot. Yeah, this is also the year the Pentagon officially opens for business, <laughs> becoming oh. the becoming. Becoming the biggest office building in the world, which is the only really, you know, that's the only really important thing about the Pentagon that we know of, is that it's the biggest office building in the world. Is that is that from uh, the Wikipedia description? <laughs> yeah, yeah. It said becoming the biggest office building in the world, and it's like, okay, but also, like, there's some other stuff that it was, you know? Well, you nah. know, WikiLeaks has nah. gotten real creative in their edits these days. <laughs> um... Things that were going on besides the fucking war, which was uh, uh, not a whole lot, but there were a few things going on. This was the year that the Golden Globes started, actually. This was the uh, first nominations for the Golden Globes that would air the next year in 1944. Uh, Yeah, and uh, Best Picture went to the Song of Bernadette. That was the first Golden Globe for Best Picture. And uh, it did not go to the Titanic. The Joseph Goebbels movie. <laughs> they didn't. The, the Gerb got robbed. Movie. The Gerb got snubbed that year for sure for the Golden Globes. 
Uh, as far as music goes, we got Frank Sinatra really picking up a lot of speed. He's becoming like a thing this year. Uh, but the top song of the year is In the Mood by Glenn Miller. You know. This is a song that you learn on piano. Maybe that'll be our new... Oh my god, maybe that's the new film history theme. It's just us doing it in our voices. But also... Most importantly to our story here today, this is the year that our man Marlon Brando, at 19 years old, is floating around his first years in New York. And if you remember, he couldn't go to World War II because he had a trick knee. So he's in New York at this time. Uh, I still don't quite know what a trick knee is. <laughs> oh, that's tricky knee, boy. Trick knee. <laughs> it's a tricky knee. It's an. It's. I think. I think Drake hit the nail on the head. I think it's a knee that does things that are unbelievable. You know, like an Inspector like... Gadget knee. <laughs> Shit just pops out of it. Umbrella. Go go knee umbrella. <laughs> I, I mean, does it, I don't know. Does that mean like sometimes it bends backwards or something? Like, what is a trick name? Uh, it's, 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 it just tells, it, it does magic tricks and it tells you jokes. <laughs> it just means his knee's fucked up. It's just okay, like, I found it. Yeah, it is. A trick knee is a condition where your knee suddenly buckles beneath you. So yeah, no, that's legit, man. That's legit. That'll keep you from going to war. I don't want to be over there fucking getting shot at and my knee buckle. That's pretty bad. Yeah. Um. Oh, yeah. All right. Knee. <laughs> tricky I mean, knee. You'd be fine if you're sitting down in a tank or on an artillery thing. You know? it's like, <laughs> there's, there's positions you can be in. Fuck that. Go to war. <laughs> uh, I'm surprised the military didn't say that, especially with his like height and shape and everything. Man, I'm surprised they were like, "Trick knee or not, your ass is getting over here." Um. But yeah, today he's floating around New York. Today we're going to talk about his Broadway days. This is Marlon Brando's very, very early budding career as an actor. Uh, he is surfing couches around New York, and through his sister's recommendation, he gets into the American Theater Wing Professional School, which is part of the dramatic workshop of the new school in New York. So... The new school is this private college uh, that has like a somewhat more free curriculum. Drake, I think, I mean, I wouldn't compare it so much to like a full sale, uh, but some something like that, or or like a you know like, like the a LA Juilliard, film school, but not Juilliard. Yeah, yeah, but it's more of like this thing has like a seventy percent acceptance rate. It's it's kind of a thing of like actually it's sixty nine. <laughs> nice. Uh, <laughs> it's it's kind of a thing where like look if you pay for this school and you really work, you know, uh, if if you pay for this school and it looks like you could do pretty well here, you can get it. Yeah, you know, and it is it is. A very valuable education. Uh, you're going to be working with people who are in the industry. Uh, you are going to get exposure. You are going to get an education. You know, it's 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 one of those like it's a private college type of thing. You know. Yeah. And and so that's kind of where he 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 gets into the theater department of this the new school. Um, and it's. Like I said, I it's nothing. I, I don't. It's it's kind of like the L.A. Film School, which I wish I had gone to. I didn't go back in the day. I think a lot of people think that these are kind of like scammy sometimes, 
but they're not. You know, there's a lot of makeup schools out here that do the same thing. Like you can go to makeup school or film school, and you will have a class with somebody who's a heavy hitter from the industry, and it it actually does. Well, I guess what I'm saying is, if you get a chance, go to one of these schools if you're coming out to L.A. You know, or New York or wherever you're going. Yeah, I mean, um, I, this does sound very similar to like the school I went to and stuff. And I mean, there are pros and cons to it. Uh, it's it's going to be a very particular type of education that is hyper geared towards these particular things. And you know, uh, some people have more success just trying to get into the industry right away and just uh, like just trying to jump right into working. Other people like uh, you know like do value the. Uh, actual formal education part of it that you get like training for it and stuff. So it's definitely something to consider. Um, but uh, yeah. it's um, yeah. uh, don't don't confuse your your work your your school experience for work experience. Like if you do these kinds of things, it's still important to like actually get on sets and uh, like get some practical experience as well. Even though the schools emulate the work site as close as they can, employers still aren't going to look at it that way. So right. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I think uh, in Marlon's case, it really works for acting. Like, I mean, talk about like a good place, you know, as far as because acting, it really always just comes down to, um, you know, can you do it? Do you know how to do it? Uh, can you hit your marks? Can you memorize your lines? Can you like be out there, you know, uh, with your angles looking good, all that good shit? And this is definitely a great place for that. And if you've got people who are coming in, you know, I mean, the list of of alumni from this, the new school was miles. I mean, we're talking about like the range was like from fucking like Tennessee Williams to uh, like Rob Zombie. <laughs> you know, like Rob Zombie went to the new school, at, like modern day ish, you know, and learned music there. You know, it's Whoa. like these... And and a and a shit ton of actors over the last hundred years have gone to this place, and when they graduate there, uh, they'll come back and teach a course. And I mean, God willing, you get in front of one of these old like legends, and they'll tell you what you're doing and how you're doing it, and what they think you should do. You know, and I think for acting, it's almost more effective than probably any other besides music. I would say music as well. You know, definitely more than. I don't know. Uh, I think like a directing or producing, it always kind of comes down to the individual eye or like your mindset. But there are certain crafts that you can learn in schools like this uh, that you can really benefit from. Anyway, I don't know if that makes any sense, but I mean, so <laughs> didn't yeah? Go ahead. Sorry, I was just to say like James Lipton and some of these other people. Um, yeah, you can cut that. Yeah, and that's. <laughs> No, that's okay. No, and this is uh, before the actor studio. That's actually uh, going to be part of the episode today. This is like pre-actor studio, New York. Marlon Brando's at the New School in 1943, uh, and uh, so this was he was really getting the goods from this acting program. There, he started studying under Erwin Friedrich Max Piscator, a German theater director who descended from one of the dudes who translated the Bible in the 1600s. Whoa. That's kind of like an interesting fact about this guy. But uh, also, it's just kind of interesting that, like, <laughs> during World War II, like, all the acting in New York was, like, Russian and German, you know? Uh, <laughs> he's like, I wonder how that went. I wonder, I wonder what people had to say about him taking a class with this German dude right in the height of World War II, you know? Yeah, interesting. Probably weren't that... 
happy about it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. His his dad, if his dad even knew what he was doing, he probably wasn't very happy about it. You know. <laughs> but uh. <laughs> So it was here where he got his first minor role. So he's he's at this class. He's he's studying under this German guy, um, and he's learning how to be Marlon Brando. You know, he's learning all of his techniques. He hasn't quite discovered the method yet, but he is definitely uh, catching on to what acting is and what he would become as an actor. And you know, uh, in part one, we were talking about it a little bit. I mean, he was always kind of. A little actor kid, you know. His mom definitely raised him and his sisters in acting. Even as a little kid, he was like mimicking animals, and uh, he was always like picking up his friends' mannerisms. And he was doing. I think this guy was literally kind of born to be an actor. He was like you know? uh, he was a furry and a mime and a clown. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> That's a, another another name for his autobiography: a furry, a mime, and a clown. Uh, it's funny. You, oh my god. That's really funny you say that, Dev, because it was here where he got his first minor role in a big play off-Broadway, and he played, like, a guard or something in this play called Bobino, which is a fucking French clown play. (laughs) That's awesome. His first thing was, like, this, like, French clown thing called Bobino. Apparently, they still run it today. People still do Bobino in places. Yeah. That sounds like a French thing. We're going to make this yeah. play about clowns. <laughs> I'm sure it's like depressing as shit. Right. You know? it's and probably, like, we, yeah. We're like, we're going to make this horror movie about clowns. Like That's what we do in America. <laughs> we're like, no, no, right. no. We, we are less sad. <laughs> yeah. Clown, clowns are uh, the representation of emotion. <laughs> clowns are people too. you know just like how al jolson was sitting in the crowd of penny arcade with james cagney somebody must have been in the crowd for the clown play because after that marlon just immediately goes from fucking clown play to broadway (laughs) like (laughs) his next thing was his broadway debut in i remember mama a play by John Van Druten based on Catherine Forbes' novel Mama's Bank Account, which was loosely loosely based on her childhood. Um, It's this, like, it was this study of family life centered on a Norwegian immigrant family in San Francisco in the early 20th century, and it premiered on Broadway on October 19th, 1944 at the Music Box Theater in New York City, where it ran for 713 performances, and Brando played a minor role named Nels in this Broadway play. So That's awesome. Already, That's like three yeah. years of a run for three years. That's great. So, yeah, I mean, you talk about just like immediately getting Broadway. You know, he's playing this minor role, and this got him on his path. Uh, this definitely got him. He is now a part of that Broadway, uh, you know, stock or or... I, one day I want to get into all that history, Dev, about like the 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 stock, you know, the summer stock and all that stuff. But I didn't I didn't feel like we had time for it on this episode. But one day. But he becomes you know part of that circulation of actors on Broadway. So in 1946, um, he gets recognized from doing this Nell's character, and he gets picked up for a small role in a play called Truckline Cafe, and. I will refer to you to an article from The New Yorker titled Method Man, How the Greatest American Actor Lost His Way by Claudia Roth Pierpoint. Fuck that Claudia bitch. writes, 
(laughs) (laughs) Claudia writes, In the midst of Broadway's victory season in March 1946, an outraged ad denouncing the critics appearing in the Times, signed by the production team of Elia Kazan and Harold Klerman, the ad failed to save their drama about returning vets, Truckline Cafe, from closing after a mere 13 performances. So... This play is running. This is Elia Kazan. This is uh, I'm introducing this character to the story right now because this becomes one of the most important people, not only in Marlon Brando's life, but Elia Kazan is kind of one of the most important people in uh, acting history and film history as well. He's directing this play at the time called Truckline Cafe, and it gets such bad reviews in the paper that... He took out an ad in the paper, like defending it. <laughs> he took out like a like a counter review. He was like, "No, fuck you. This play is really good. I'm not going to let you slander it." But the play, although it was you know widely hated, uh, the critics really hated this thing. It went down in history thanks to a five minute speech made by a little known actor in a secondary role, Marlon Brando. And this is him at 21 years old. He plays this ex-GI. He comes home from war, and he finds out that his wife has been cheating on him. And it's this explosive, huge scene in Truckline Cafe. And there's a scene where he enters exhausted, and he's soaking wet. And he confessed that he kills his wife. He like has like murdered her, drug her body out to the ocean, you know the shit that uh, the shit that these war vets would do when they would come home to their wife cheating. You know, just murder them <laughs> and drop them in the ocean. You know how many uh, other dudes I just killed? <laughs> yeah. You think one more means anything to me? I, my heart one is more. cold and black now. <laughs> one more body don't mean much to me, baby. But. Uh, <laughs> Uh, so also this play was also Carl Malden was in this thing who was another big actor he played another minor role Uh, he reported that the rest of the cast sometimes had to wait for nearly two minutes after Broadway's or after Brando's exit while the audience was just like going fucking nuts over what they had just seen it was this just like explosive remarkable performance uh, it was apparently a very young Pauline Kale, who was like this also big actress. She came in to see the play once, and she said, uh, "She said she happened to come in late and recalled that she averted her eyes in embarrassment from what appeared to be a man having a seizure on stage." <laughs> she said, "She says it wasn't until my companion grabbed my arm and said, watch this guy,' that I really I realized he was acting." <laughs> That's hilarious. I thought that was hilarious, too. But, like, here's a lesson for all those actors. For all you actors out there listening, it doesn't matter whether you get the lead or guy number three in the background. You can upstage, and if you do kill whatever performance, like, kill that performance to the best of your ability and, like, knock it out of the park, and you won't have to be intentionally upstaging, but other people will notice it, and you can be the talk of the town. There's been... Times when I was a supporting role, when I was Willard and Footloose, Willard is not one of the main, like, really one of the main characters. He's like a supporting role. But arguably, everybody loved that character in the way that I did it more than some of the other elements of the show. Like, that's not me being hubris. It was more like that's the notes that I got from people after the fact and stuff and, like, hearing reviews. For sure, man. 
Yeah, that supporting actor thing is no joke. I always refer, and a lot of people do too, like The Fighter. You know, Christian Bale in The Fighter was that movie. But he was yeah. the he was second banana. But, like, who do you remember when you remember that movie? Because you know? it certainly second isn't fucking Mark Damon or Matt Wahlberg or whoever it was who played the lead, for sure. Uh, but, uh, but I... Mark Damon? Or Matt Wahlberg. But uh, I, mean, I love that thought, know, too. Steve though. Buscemi, Armageddon. You know, like, yeah, 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 not yeah. Not maybe not exactly. the whole movie, but you know, something that you stand out, and you're like, oh, you could have, you, you, you could have just called this in or whatever. Yeah, but yeah. you know, it's it's the cool it's the cool role with like not saying there's no pressure for sure. There's a lot of pressure, but it's not as much. You're not you're not you know carrying the whole film. So I feel like you have a little bit more room to breathe and a little bit more room to. Really fucking go, you know? Listen, like just go, not why everybody not? Everybody needs to be Tom Cruise. There is only one Tom Cruise. <laughs> yep, there you go. So, yeah, some people got to be like Steve Buscemi, like you said. Some people you know? got to be Goose. You know, <laughs> some people got. Dude, I would love to be Goose. You know, that's that definitely. Yeah, for sure, that's a good one. But yeah, Marlon Brando. Yeah, I was just saying words. <laughs> <laughs> Drake's like, my fever just hit 106. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, Drake's just melting in front of us right now. <laughs> but Marlon Brando's killing it. He's bringing down the fucking house on Truckline Cafe, uh, and he's like convulsing on stage, screaming. I mean, you know, when you watch Marlon's movies, you can kind of get a get a get the gist of probably what that looked like on stage because he he was uh, there was not a bone in his body that told him to hold back anything whenever he was acting. You know, that man went all fucking out, and I'm sure it was quite the performance. Uh, even so, even though the dismal fate of Truckline Cafe, this this play totally bombed. But people absolutely remembered Marlon Brando from this thing. And one of them was the director, Aliyah Kazan, who was like, this kid is going to be something. You know, this kid is going to be a thing. So after the play bombs, Aliyah Kazan kind of uh, almost like disheartened in a way, decided he was going to step away from directing theaters for just a moment to do a thing that he had always wanted to do, which was start an actor's school. He wanted to start a school and bring up the next generation of actors for Broadway. Um, and that was kind of one of his big goals in life. And so he figured now's the time to do it. So this is when Elia Kazan starts the actor's studio. And if you remember the James Dean episode, you know... We, we said it would come back around. <laughs> this is the famous actor studio in New York that got all these guys ah. started. Yeah. And uh, by the way, some of you might recognize Kazan, uh, Zoe Kazan, his granddaughter is an actress these days. Uh, she was, she's, done, she's been doing a bunch of stuff lately. But uh, a lot of people didn't know that that's her grandfather is the Elia Kazan. Uh, but of the entire cast of the play, only Brando and Malden had given the kind of performance that Kazan and Clerman wanted. Natural, psychologically acute, as contemporary American plays required. Their ideal of acting derived from their days back in the day in the group theater, which had flourished in the 30s uh, with brashly vernacular and politically conscious plays. 
Clifford Odette's Waiting for Lefty was his first big hit in which ordinary people were portrayed in a startlingly realistic way. <laughs> this this group theater in the 30s where these guys came from was it it was very like uh early 30s avant-garde acting type of school. They were really going for this like realism in acting. You know, that was what Kazan came up in. Um and so he was kind of looking to perpetuate this method in a but mix it with a bunch of different methods. You know, you know what I'm talking about. <laughs> Fucking actors, man, we're insufferable. You know, it's all it's all just like really just snooty bullshit. But uh <laughs> Well at least you're but, self-aware. Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> Like I said, this is a very actory episode. I hope this is even interesting to most people. It, I, it's very interesting. I, uh, I I would have more commentary if I wasn't like focusing on breathing. Um. <laughs> All good. All good. So this revolution in acting, uh, the actor studio is beginning. This revolution grew from Stanislavski's accounts of his performances with the Moscow Art Theater, uh, an approach eventually known simply as the method. This is where Ooh, in comes method. the method. Yeah. The method. And in its quest for onstage honesty, replace traditional theatrical training with exercises designed to stir up personal memories, refine powers of observation, and free the imagination through improvisation and all sorts of other Asians and damnation and seven nation army. Uh, <laughs> Yeah, man. It it seems interesting that like it took so long to arrive at this idea. You know yeah. what I mean? Like it's yeah. just like I don't know. It, it like this uh, the trials and tribulations that they went through to arrive at this. Like there's like 15 people at the start of school and like combine all these different forms of acting theory inside a cauldron and like sacrifice a lamb in order to like birth <laughs> this idea called the method. And it's like I don't know. It's like if you're trying to pretend to be somebody else maybe it would be helpful to like pretend to be that person like i, I don't know it just seems very very obvious and yeah. it, it it seems like they're just making a bigger deal about this than you need to when it's just like yeah just pretend to be that thing I, I don't know it's it seems really over over dramatic for what for what this is and i also don't see why like the old actors. It's like, what was your process when you guys were acting? You guys just right. read words on a page? Like, I don't right. buy that either. You know what I mean? Like, so weren't right. all of you guys doing this? You just didn't. We just weren't drama queens about it. Stanislavski's was around for a while, and I I would yeah. confidently say that like people did this style of acting, but nobody like wrote it down and wrote it out as like a process. You know what I mean? Right, like they probably like just curriculum. like internally did it and like just use these tricks and tools as their personal method. Like I bet you Shakespearean actors did this and Greek actors did this. They just didn't call it that. And back in those days, and even with Meisner, the the main difference is one, you're putting on the character and wearing it and like using going from external to yourself and like you know, using different costumes, different other things as tools. But the other one, you're becoming that and you kind of live it and you, your brain like in, thinks it, it, you trick your brain into thinking that it, it, you are that character versus you being aware of, oh, I'm acting right now and portraying a character. If that makes mm, any sense. So I was pretty surely explaining it. Yeah, that it. does. <laughs> 
So like, yeah, I, no, I, I, I would say that people definitely, actors definitely did this before, but nobody just fucking put it into like a formula that st- like Stanislavski did. And then one of the appeals is like, I think that would when you're doing something and you can't explain it and then somebody else writes like a how-to manual of it you're like oh yeah that over there that's what i like so a lot of that appeal wasn't even like the discovery of all this new style it was more an affirmation of being like oh look now you're explaining clearly what i've been trying to put into words what i've been trying to do with this process Mm -hmm. you know for so long that makes sense right like yeah it was them damn russians and germans man they done they done took Poland, and now they're taking our youngsters and teaching them to remember when the weird uncle got a little too handsy at the barbecue so you can cry on command, you know? Yeah. And, <laughs> I, I actually, I do think it's very emotional, or, or very interesting, um, and it, it is, it's so fucking Russian to think about. Like, basically, when you break it down, it's like, hey, you know that trauma that you should be, like, going to therapy for? Instead of therapy, fuck that shit. Just use it to, like pretend to be something else using your art yeah yeah like use your trauma and your emotions to manipulate others emotions <laughs> the Russians, that is what the method and is. this was like even during the days of the czar uh even before communist russia but the russians as like a culture as a people have very beautiful like narrative works like writing yeah. literature poems you know for sure music composition stuff like that and and I mean, granted, I'm sure they have beautiful, like, paintings and visual art as well, but I think they're most notable for their, like, literary works. And when you're, like, in that use of language and creating characters and telling a story, it's really just storytelling. When you're really good at storytelling, it would make sense. Like, I don't think this style would come from, like, uh, a Japanese culture, which is very Mm. more, like, formal and meticulous and perfection. You know what I mean? Like. It's a different yeah. mindset and a way of thinking of like where that is rooted from, and I, you know, I love the, that's, one of the things I love is Russian poetry and Russian books and like literature and fiction. Yeah, that was kind of uh, the group theater. What you're saying is exactly kind of what they were chasing after. They wanted anti-Broadway, anti-commercial theater. They wanted like a very real, gritty, raw theater, like for the actors. Uh, the goal was, like, real emotion produced on fucking cue. You know, like, real emotion. Like, not lying. Like, truthful emotion, yeah. you know? And it's kind of like... You're living it. Yeah, yeah you're, exactly. You're living on stage. That's, like, the whole goal. Yeah, so like you said, Dev, it was very, like, not formal. Well, you know, it was those, very, like, like, real. improvisational things, the body movement, the micro-expressions, all that shit comes through naturally and easily when you're taking that approach if you're doing a meisner approach where like you're getting into character by like putting on the costume that's very elaborate or something like that then you have to think about all those little micro expressions and bodily movements and make sure you remember to do them versus just doing them unconsciously so it, it right. you know this is a, it's, yeah. it's a preference yeah so by now you know the group the group theater had already disbanded by this point by the time brando even got to new york there was no more the group theater but all these people were kind of uh breakaways from the group theater you know you had kazan and one of the charter members of the group theater one of the breakaways was uh stella adler who had actually studied with Stanislavski. That's wild. Oh, I didn't know yes. Adler studied with Stanislavski. That's pretty, that's pretty yeah. dumb. Yeah. 
Yeah, she was a student of his, like, in the flesh. And Stella Adler is whom Marlon credited as his teacher, like, you know, for everything. Like, to the end of his life, he said his quote was, she, she taught me to be real and not to try to act out an emotion I didn't personally experience during a performance. And uh, so this would become, I, and we talked about it a little bit in the James Dean episode even, about how a lot of people say that he came up in the actor's studio, Marlon Brando, but Marlon Brando said it it wasn't really the actor's studio, it was more just Stella Adler and Elia Kazan. Those were like his teachers, you know. And it says, Adler seems to have taken less than a week to decide that the brooding 19-year-old in the torn blue jeans and the dirty t-shirt was going to become America's finest actor. But she always denied that she had taught him a thing. As his fellow student Elaine Stritch later remarked, Marlon's going to class to learn the method was like sending a tiger to jungle school. (laughs) What a fucking badass quote. (laughs) Yeah, dude. That is like the biggest compliment I've ever heard of an actor. Yeah, Yeah, and and that's what I imagined it was like. I imagined being on stage with this guy was like, fuck. (laughs) Like, this dude is like born to do this you know like it was it was like putting a fucking duck in water it was just like the guy was living breathing actor you know uh, everything about him i just watched uh uh a streetcar named desire again last night just to like get all marlon brandoed in and it's true man like that guy was fucking incredible just incredible dude like everything he said was so fucking believable you know uh, he he really might have been one of the best that ever lived, like people say. I gotta I got I gotta check out more of this. Uh, I mean, Brando for fella. sure, yeah. you know, filmmaking's really been like only big, big for the past hundred years or so. You know, so like, yeah, it's it's different to be you know if you're talking about actor in general or film actor because I don't you know I would be curious to I would like to have been able to see him on stage as well as on film. Do you Me know too. what I mean? Me too. Yeah, absolutely. Because yeah, there's man, differences even... for sure. Like, you can't do stage acting on camera and vice versa. I know. I would love to see that too. I would have loved to have seen him in Truckline Cafe as the as the veteran who just killed his wife. You yeah. know, like, I mean, it, it really, like, even during a, even the failed play, he was getting good, good notes. Hey, man, you know? I'm, I would be excited to see him as, like, clown security guard three. In- <laughs> <laughs> see, yeah, that's the thing. That's, I think you're hitting the nail on the head. That was Marlon Brando. It was like, I will watch this guy fucking uh, paint a wall. Like, I don't, I will watch this guy just, like, eat lunch, you know? Like, it, it whatever he does... You just want to watch him do it because there's just something fucking different about the way that he does it, you know? And everybody thought so. Stella Adler, immediately. The, the Stella Adler, who had studied with Stanislavski himself, was like, this guy is going to be the greatest actor ever. <laughs> like, she called it immediately. And they weren't the only ones. They were not the only ones who saw Marlon as the next big thing. After Truckline Cafe, Brando just blows up all over Broadway. Uh, he makes a turn in Candida. This big play, along with a ton of other productions. He had a small issue at the time, uh, as he's growing. You know, as they do whenever you're becoming a big Broadway actor, they want to pay you. They want to pay you some good money to do this. 
And he had a real issue with getting paid. He did not like to get a lot of money for what he was doing. I think he felt like it was kind of tainting his art or whatever. Or And I've heard of this before, where like an artist starts to get paid for whatever it is they're doing, and they feel like they might be losing a little bit of their art. You know what I mean? Drake, have you ever heard of something like that? Uh, ah, yes, but that's the most fucking pretentious thing I've yeah, ever yeah. heard in my life. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I, yeah. I hate it. And like yeah. I've more so heard the opposite of that, where like people don't want to pay artists and be like, "Why aren't you just doing this for the art? Like, you do you really need <laughs> this money?" Or it's like, right. "Oh, you're doing it for all the wrong reasons." It's like, no, like making sure my rent is paid doesn't feel like an evil. <laughs> doesn't feel like an evil addiction <laughs> to money, but uh, you know, um, yeah, no, I've heard that before. I, I think it's super pretentious. Uh, yeah, and I hear it's ya. also um, very unrealistic. And so. I. I've definitely I've heard talent managers out here say like don't get too comfortable, you know, like oh, always be hungry. Well, Marlon was having trouble accepting this money. <laughs> uh, he was even he was offered a play. He was offered Noel Coward, terrible name. Noel Coward's present laughter was this play. He got offered for and it was for like more money than he had ever fucking seen in his life. And he turned it down. And he said, don't you know there are people starving in Europe? <laughs> he was like, I'm not going to do this. It, this man I love had how he says such... Europe, too. Like, we yeah, we yeah, yeah. Still he... didn't care about Africa or any of those other places quite <laughs> right, yet. Like, right. They were like, yeah. fuck all that. I don't even know that's a place. I didn't even know that existed. Well, but what about these Europeans? <laughs> he actually got very into it he actually got very i think uh he was having a thing as well at the same time where he didn't go to war and i think he's kind of feeling like he needs to contribute in some way and i think that also was part of it i think he felt a little bit bad that i'm not going to go to world war ii and also i'm gonna get this like cushy high-paid job while i'm over here i i think it was all this he dude he turned down so as he's doing Broadway, MGM comes a calling. Uh, MGM came at him with an offer it, while he's in New York, like living on his sister's couch still. Came at him with an offer. It was three thousand dollars a week with fucking MGM. And when you put that through the old inflation calculator, he turned down forty-five thousand dollars a week and an MGM contract because he. He, like, didn't feel like he was there yet. He didn't feel like he was, like, an actor who deserved that kind of money yet. You know, well, hold on. Oh, go ahead, Kevin. I got a thing. That's, okay. that's, that's pretty pussy. I would say that Brando, <laughs> Brando's being a little Brando bitch right now. Like, you could have just taken the excess, of, like, pay yourself what you deserve, and then maybe give the rest away to charity. Maybe help out right. some, uh, start some kind of thing that helps out these soldiers when they return, or families now. There's... There's a lot of things you could have done with that extra cash. Just to be like, I don't feel like I deserve this right now is really dumb. <laughs> I also, I love how he's like, I would never take money for my art. What do I need money for? Meanwhile, his sister's like, I don't know, maybe to help pay the rents. Yeah. Sleeping on my couch. <laughs> Get the fuck off of my couch. You need to start making money on your art right now. And I, he made, I, I'm sure he he was making plenty of money too, I'm sure. Yeah, okay. But uh, yeah. 
<laughs> he's like, what would we use money for? And she's like, I don't know, to pay the rent? That Maybe that yeah. never occurred to you? Cause <laughs> I don't know. Maybe so I can sit on my couch again in the morning and have coffee without your fucking annoying ass being here 24-7, you know? Imagine living with Marlon Brando. What a fucking nightmare that had to have been. It's like, shut up and get out, please. I do not want to hear any more of your, like, diatribes about acting. Please get out of my house. He's always uh, just giving you monologues. <laughs> yeah, yeah. He's just fucking practicing his flopping on the ground for Truckline Cafe in your living room all night. It's like, Jesus Christ. Uh, but in, instead of MGM, in the fall of 1946, he chose to do a play that Ben Hecht had devised to raise money for transporting Jewish refugees from Europe to Palestine. Um, so during which, <laughs> it was this play where he shouted at the audience, and he would like yell at the audience, and <laughs> he would shout at them, where were you when six million Jews were being burned to death in the ovens of Auschwitz? And the programs of the play had, like, donation slips in the program that people could fill out. And he's basically just yelling at people to send money to Europe for Jewish refugees. Um, to to which start is a good... Israel. Yeah, yeah, that was, exactly. That's what that was. They were moving yeah. there for a reason. <laughs> yeah, he was, he was one of the guys kicking up money to do that. And it, which is a good cause, but also <laughs> yelling at the audience, where were no? you? It's like... <laughs> yeah, no, I know, I know what you mean. But also, like, yelling at the audience, where were you? It's like, hey, Marlon, where were you? Yeah. <laughs> like, where, where were you when they were doing that? I you was were on here. the stage. <laughs> <laughs> doing Truckline Cafe, you know? Yeah. So they but, were trying uh, to raise money to start Israel? Yeah, yeah. It was for the Jewish refugees uh, it, to for uh, to Palestine. So, I guess, Drake, from- just a little history, real quick. Israel didn't exist before World War Two. Israel. Yeah, yeah, no, so, no. I know that. Yeah. I know that. There but was, it's just weird to be like. I thought. I didn't think the money to start Israel came from panhandling to fucking audience <laughs> came, to the theater. It came from every, anywhere that could get money. What are you talking about? It came from anywhere. <laughs> It like, came from the United Nations. For, it came from fucking anywhere. <laughs> for only for only a dollar, you too can help. De- you too can help evict a Palestinian family from their home. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> Where were you, Drake? Where were you? Oh, that's really funny. Oh I, man. I, they're just like there's fucking like uh, this is someone's dressed in a Santa outfit, just ringing a bell like twenty five cents. <laughs> I don't know if it would be Santa, but <laughs> yeah. Yeah. maybe like a dreidel or something. I don't know. Uh, that's what that's what you do when you got the trick knee and you can't go. You know, you got to stay behind and kick up some funds, baby. But all of this culminates. This all you know, Marlon Brando uh, coming up with Elia Kazan. He's learning with Stella Adler. He's doing these plays. He's really He's he's become a main face of Broadway, uh, very much becoming like a, a star on Broadway, and this all, and also he's not he's not taking MGM contracts. That also is part of this. He's not uh, he's not taking big plays with big money right now because he's he doesn't want to do that. He would rather keep this the way it's going, and all this leads to here. 1947, uh, for those of you keeping score, Marlon is 23 years old by now. Just a little, just little 23-year-old hairless boy at this point. Uh, and Broadway is a rumbling 
with one of the greatest plays ever to be staged in history. Hot off of Tennessee Williams's scotch-covered typewriter comes A Streetcar Named Desire. And it is the story of a highly sexed and poorly spoken middle-aged Polish-American man named Stanley Kowalski, uh, another vet, a war vet with a violent streak, who rapes an emotionally fragile and aristocratic woman, Blanche Dubois. Spoiler alert, by the way, but that's kind of like what the whole thing is about. Um, definitely go watch this after this. Spoiler trick. <laughs> alert for the thing that's 70 years old. <laughs> yeah, for the 70-year-old play <laughs> that became a movie. Uh, the play's cautionary theme was described by Tennessee Williams as the apes will inherit the earth. That was like the overall of this play. And it, it's it's very, he very, you know, he kept that very true to form. Uh, Elia Kazan was scheduled to direct. So just immediately just getting old Kazan in there, you know, big heavy hitting Broadway director, started the actor studio by now. And Tennessee Williams is like, you're my guy for my next play, you know. Um <clears throat> Irene Mayer Selznick produced the play, and he, she and Kazan, they were agreed upon the lead actor for Stanley was going to be John Garfield. He was this movie star at the time who was also big on Broadway, uh, and they thought he would be perfect. He graduated from the group theater back in the day. He was a little bit, he was like closer to like late 30s, you know, like 40. Uh, and so he was kind of this guy who had come up with all of them in the group theater and had become a big success. And they thought he would be perfect for Stanley Kowalski in this thing. But he wanted too much money. He was asking for too much shit. He would he had already become a big star by this point. You know, he was kind of he definitely did not fit this like low this blue collar, uh, poorly spoken Polish man that they wanted, you know. And so basically it just became impossible. They said, fuck that guy. So Kazan, he began searching for a newer, hot actor wouldn't ask for so much. And, you know, when you're Elia Kazan, where else do you look besides the very prestigious school that you created? So he started just looking at the actor studio. Who's in my lower classes in the studio? You know, who hasn't really come up yet? And who wouldn't ask for a lot of money? <laughs> <laughs> who so, hates money? Which of my students buys his money? I have the perfect <laughs> candidate. Yes. How many times do you think every time there's a good idea or a successful thing that happened, that the people in the room, including himself, just went, Kazan! And just like, <laughs> Kazan! <laughs> who wouldn't ask for a lot of money? And who is in my little garden of actors that I've created? You know, he could just like pluck them out of his little studio for the plays that they were ripe for, and they had learned to channel their very real psychological traumas into some goddamn good acting. You know, <laughs> and they won't ask for much money. Uh, <laughs> basically, I have warped these kids' minds enough. Uh, now I'm starting to look for who can be in my plays. Which of these um, trauma patients have I convinced <laughs> this money is a sin? <laughs> it was the perfect culmination. It's the perfect storm for your actor for your next thing. You've been reading so, too many of those Russian literature. <laughs> <laughs> and first guy who comes up for him, it was Marlon Brando. I mean, this guy is hot. 
This guy is is new. People are loving him. He's really fucking good. He's hooked into the school. He's like definitely a part of the actor studio program. Uh, he doesn't want much money, <laughs> so pretty much just the perfect guy, you know. So remember, everyone, next time you're looking for your next gig, just act like you're allergic to money, and they'll they'll the producers will come a knocking, you know. Uh, that truer words have so, not been spoken. <laughs> <laughs> So Kazan decided to take a risk on Brando, and this is even though um, he's way too young for this role. You know, did Kazan phrase <laughs> it like that, or was that your language? Yeah, that was oh, my okay. language. I was like, <laughs> he took a risk. I was like, Kazan would have been like, "Listen, even though you don't like money, you're a hell of an actor, <laughs> and you have nothing else going on right now." Uh, I'm taking a huge risk here. <laughs> <laughs> I'm really putting my yeah. neck out. <laughs> it it kind of was. I mean, it was a little bit of like, so he brings him to Tennessee Williams himself. He's like, this is the guy who I think could be your Stanley. And if you can imagine the scene here, we're talking about Marlon Brando, the way he looked in the movie. That's how he looks right now. He is buff. He's fucking like... This shredded, you know, like jock looking dude with he's just handsome as hell. He's young. He's like kind of funny and charming, you know. And Kazan brings him to Tennessee Williams as like, this is the guy who I want as like your sweaty Polish man in New Orleans. You know, <laughs> like you're like your your abusive, uh, poorly spoken guy. And Tennessee Williams um immediately was all about it, actually. He 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 brought him in. Marlon could cry on cue. He, he's done all the stuff. And he just fucking kills it. But not only that, for he added this element to the role that Tennessee Williams had not even really thought of while he was writing it. Uh, before Brando came along, when it was going to be an older actor, Stanley was just going to be really bad. Just like straight up a villain. You know, like this dude is a terrible abusive person, very violent, very volatile. But Marlon kind of came in and he played it like an anti-hero. You know, he was kind of this guy who, like, you don't want to root for him, but damn, look at him. <laughs> you know, like, it, it was sort of this, like, charming, hot version of the guy that he had written. It's and like, oh, Tennessee Williams... Tennessee Williams is like... terrible, but you're too hot not to like... I don't know what these feelings yeah. are deep inside of me. <laughs> <laughs> Suddenly, I feel different. I feel I feel some tingles. Uh, yeah, he sort of. I think what Tennessee Williams saw was he sort of emulated a bit more of like a realistic scenario of a toxic, abusive guy. Like it's this guy who, for some fucking reason, you're not going to leave because there's just something there that you can't leave, you know what I mean, versus why the fuck would you even stick around for all this, you know what I mean? Uh, and it was this, like, yeah, like, Stella won't leave him even after how shitty he is. Drake, go watch the movie, man, for sure. For sure, go watch the movie. But he said that Brando humanized the vengeful Stanley, reducing his willful destructiveness to what Williams excitedly described as the brutality or callousness of youth. Good and evil were now more subtly matched. It would not be so easy to take sides. And that's what Williams got all hard about. Was like the He Ted Bundy him. Yes, 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 yes. He Ted Bundy him. Like 
how fucking much of a sociopath do you have to be to like Ted Bundy in acting role? Yeah, like, <laughs> yeah, thing. yeah. To take this just clear villain. I mean, I, I don't know what else to compare it to. I guess like fucking Tom Hardy's Bane or something, you know, Let's, like or the Joker. The Joker is very much this. Maybe like Nicholson's Joker because yeah. you kind of like him and he's having, you know. Yeah, like, even Heath Ledger's Joker. I mean, somebody a villain that was horrible, likable. Yeah, and yeah, yeah, relatable. yeah. Relatable. A lot of Jack Nicholson roles, actually. A lot of like roles that Jack Nicholson was just this terrible person, but he was just so damn charming, yeah. you know. I bet you Jack and Brando party. Oh my God! Absolutely, they did. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think that would be that would be a good one uh, to go to, like Jack Brando and Depp all together in the same green room. For sure, <laughs> for sure. I'll uh, I'll come back to you on part three and tell you whether or not that happened because I bet it fucking did. I thought, well, so, I thought you said he didn't party though. I thought you said he didn't crack up in cold ones with the boys. I thought you said he just hated everyone. I, I can't read it, man. I can't read it. In high school. Yeah, in high school he yeah, wasn't. Listen, he had to have done some partying because you can't know and can't perform method without having gone through the experience. <laughs> Interesting. That's the whole point. So, like, if you're never drunk and you got to portray somebody who's drunk, oh, you, I believe you have he to get drank drunk. heavily. Whether or not he was doing it for fun times <laughs> with the boys was, was a different story. <laughs> I'll look. Very, I'll look deeper true. into that. I'll look deeper into that. He was either yeah or fucking. I who can knows, see him maybe. being a very alone drunk. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, for sure. But I don't uh, know. Or, just him and his demons. Yeah, <laughs> just him staring at a mirror <laughs> drinking until he punches it. <laughs> <laughs> he goes from "Damn, you look good" to "Why did you do that?" <laughs> oh, six whiskey sours. <laughs> six damn. whiskey sours. Stopped at three. I hate you. I hate you. You're, you're gonna fuck this up for us. <laughs> Jesus Christ. I'm so sorry. I love you so he was, much. <laughs> he was a very self-loathing guy. I mean, even this, uh, he was basically, he wrote a letter to Tennessee Williams after this audition. Tennessee Williams is all excited. He's like, oh my God, like we're fucking restructuring the whole thing. This guy is Stanley Kowalski. And Marlon Brando was kind of like, I don't think so. I don't think I'm the guy. I think this is a mistake. He wrote a fucking letter to Tennessee Williams, like, I don't I think you have the wrong guy. I think you need to keep looking for the right guy for this play. Which made Tennessee Williams even more erect. He was like, This is this is the guy. Like he doesn't even want to be the guy. That makes him more the guy than ever. You know? <laughs> and so, fucking I swear, man. It, just act like you're allergic to money and you don't even want to be here. That's the whole game here. Uh <laughs> I but, mean, yeah, look at, like, so, Kid Rock. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Right? Isn't that how that works? But no? Tennessee... Okay. Eh, sort of. Yeah, Kid Rock was all... Yeah, that's a, yeah maybe. <laughs> I'm Detroit. I'm grunge. Give me billions of dollars. <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, you know, of course, Elliot Kazan was like, no, Marlon, you have to do this as your mentor. You've got to be Stanley. That's just going to happen. And on this the opening gonna night... It's going to happen. It's going to happen. On the opening night, Tennessee Williams responded to Marlon's letter that he didn't want to do it. And Tennessee Williams wrote this. And I'm quoting Tennessee Williams here. This is not from me. From the greasy Pollock, you will someday arrive at the gloomy Dane. <laughs> Everything's so dramatic. It's so, so unnecessary. It's like exhausting to have a regular... Like, can you imagine? Like, you're just like, he comes up and he's like ordering coffee. He's like, yes, sir. What would you like? 
well, the aroma <laughs> is transcendent, and I really, <laughs> you know, like, it's like just order the coffee. Yeah, <laughs> dude, when you watch Streetcar, you'll see it, man. Especially Vivian Lee's part. Good lord, like it's Vivian. It was just like the most annoying human being to ever be around. Was basically her part in that movie. It was just like, calm down, like <laughs> just yeah. Do you ever have just a normal moment in your whole life? You know, like you're ever just like sitting on the toilet, you know, like or or just getting a glass of water. Too much French and Italian <laughs> influence. <laughs> Yeah, for sure, for sure. Old Tennessee Williams, man, one of Mississippi's own. <laughs> and uh, <laughs> and so yeah, so he 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 takes streetcar. Uh, famously, Marlon Brando does streetcar named Desire, and this is what sends him to stardom. This is uh, well. By the way, John Garfield uh, went on to die of a heart attack at 39 years old. Uh, so Mar- Marlon took the role. John did not. Marlon became a big star, and John Garfield fucking died very young. Um, don't ever fucking go up against all- Brando for a role. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, don't do it. Don't do it, man. Just ask Paul Newman. <laughs> <laughs> but it was it was a very a very interesting thing happened with all of this though because the play also kind of went horribly wrong in a, in a, for the same reason that they loved Marlon Brando for Stanley this play went terribly wrong for Tennessee Williams they kind of fucking created a monster uh, Marlon Marlon was so fucking charming that Kazan and Tennessee Williams had accidentally created this play where this dude is supposed to be this terrible person but the crowd is like rooting for him they're, <laughs> they're like, like oh, rooting for Stanley yeah, <laughs> he's just like, yes, dude. They had inadvertently like perpetuated toxic relationships. Like, oh my how many, God. Uh, how many couples went home from that play in the 1940s, and the girlfriend was like, you know what? Tonight, actually, I want you to like put a cigarette. On. You know what I mean? <laughs> I kind of want you to throw me around a little bit tonight. You know, leave me, leave me with a black eye for work on Monday. You know, I want you to be Stanley Kowalski in bed. <laughs> Yeah, uh, Jessica Tandy, the British actress who played Blanche on the stage version of it, she said that Stanley, <laughs> Stanley would be delivering these like brutal, fucking abusive lines, these just like abusive asshole lines, and she had rehearsed, you know, uh, how she was gonna feel about these words, how how these were gonna land, and she had rehearsed with like. Uh, it, the audience that was supposed to kind of react way differently to the things that he was saying, but he would deliver these fucking lines and the audience would like laugh. Like it was like a comedy. Like it was like it turned into like this dude's just having to deal with his like bitch wife and her sister. <laughs> you know, like, it's That's like also this, a directing cool choice though. Because if somebody's delivering a line like that, you can be like, that was great, but let's try it another way. You know? Like, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. He's just like, yeah, and that's why you're a two-bit slut who deserves to be beaten in an alleyway. And the crowd's like, yeah, yeah, get her, Stanley. You know? <laughs> yeah, fuck that two-bit slut. Yeah, slap her again, Stanley. <laughs> you know, you can't be a star until you're punching your punching your woman. You know, you remember those rules from back in the CAG days. You think he had, like, groupies where, like, people would rush the stage and, like, have security or, like, yeah. definitely on the back door at yeah. the stage exit, you know? Slap me, Stanley. <laughs> Yeah, dude, but he was bringing down the fucking house with this role. Like, he was, you know, uh, like, uh, 
just to give you perspective of how big this play was, millions of people saw this fucking play over its run while it initially ran. Uh, and uh, back to our article in The New Yorker, The New Yorker was talking about, you know, the crowd being with him. It said, the reason was not just Brando's youth. It was the comic innocence that fueled the gibes or the jibes. I don't know. The baffled tenderness beneath the toughness. The face above the heavily muscled body was angelic. The pain he showed when he broke down and wailed for his wife was searing, elemental, and his intensity was almost unbearable. One critic wrote that Brando seems always on the verge of tearing down the proscenium with his bare hands. <laughs> the proscenium. Tearing down the proscenium. the proscenium with your bare hands. That's probably the most pretentious statement I've ever heard about acting. <laughs> what is a proscenium? Um, it's like part of the it stage. Is, oh. It's the type of stage that it is. It's the it is the stage. You can't tear down the proscenium. You're like standing on it. <laughs> Stomp your feet through it. Oh, actually, I was wrong. The proscenium is the over archway of the theater. Okay, that yeah. It's kind gotcha. of like it's yeah. like the the little circular part that protrudes outward right. and the archway and the top curvature. It's like all it's referring right. to the part of the stage that's in front of the curtain. Or the, right. the so there's multiple means. Uh, it's the the actual stage of Greek ancient theater. Uh, more modernly, it's the part of the stage that's in front of the curtain, so like that little part that goes out in a half circle or whatever, and it can be also used to um, say about the archway, because there's what's called a proscenium arch, and I guess like the, the things that the curtain will hang from and kind of be surrounded by and stuff, like so all of that is considered. So I guess yeah. you could bring down the proscenium. But that's lame. <laughs> With your bare yeah, that's hands. Yeah, that's a lame thing to say. Still pretentious. <laughs> <laughs> if anyone, if anyone could do it, it's fucking Marlon, dude. He could have fucking Marlon. ripped it down. Uh, that we, is sort of the intensity. Go ahead, sorry. I was just say we just keep glazing over the fact this man's named after a fish. Like, yeah, yeah, yeah. I've yeah. never heard of anyone else's name being Marlon. Like, <laughs> yeah, I've never heard of another Marlon either. Uh, it's a good Marlon Wayans. Yeah, there is Marlon Wayans. I forgot. Who's yeah, that over there? Oh, it's Trout right. Stevens. It's like his name is Trout. <laughs> that would I mean, be kind hey. of funny. Mar- <laughs> Marlon Trout. Flounder. Uh. <laughs> <laughs> uh. And you, but but you can absolutely see this intensity in the movie as well. Like he brings it in the movie too. In the movie, you always kind of feel. Like, he's just going to punch someone. That's, like, the energy that he gave for this guy. Like, in the movie, it's like, Vibes. I think he's about to, like, begin violence. You know, begin like, at all violence. at all moments. He is a very scary person. Uh, and I, 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 that was all that method, you know. It was all that method acting coming out. He's so, about to begin violence. He's about to begin violence. That's the vibes of Marlon Brando and Streetcar Named Desire. He's about to begin violence against someone. I don't know who, but somebody. The violence has (laughs) begun. The violence will begin in five minutes. Uh, So Streetcar was this enormous hit. Uh, Tandy received excellent notices, but it was Brando that the audiences were fucking in love with. Uh, and more than that, theater people recognized him as the long-promised revolution in the flesh. In Kazan's view, 
Others were giving fine performances, but Brando was living on stage. That's another way to and say Messiah, cult leader, uh, you know, <laughs> figurehead of a religious <laughs> yeah, yeah, movement, yeah. you know, whatever you want to say. He, Marlon could have led a, maybe that's probably why they got him for Colonel Kurtz, because he is very believable as a guy who would lead people into some sort of promised land. Yeah. <laughs> you know, like, people would have followed that man to the ends of the earth. There's no doubt about it. Um, but also, uh, another interesting thing that happens here with Streetcar Named Desire is it drives him fucking crazy. It started to drive Marlon. This may have begun his descent into fucking madness was doing Streetcar <laughs> on Broadway. Uh, even Elia Kazan, he, later on in life, after the play, <laughs> he's not asking this while it's running, but he asked, how many times on schedule can one rip oneself apart? Because that was every single night uh, Brand- Brando's doing the Stella scene, you know, and Brando's doing Stanley throughout this whole play every fucking night, and he's just having to destroy himself you know and apparently it started to really manifest he starts going a little bit crazy off stage backstage in between scenes he'd be like fucking climbing the rafters and shit he's just trying to get all this pent up <sighs> energy there was I one really night i want to kill somebody <laughs> but i can't <laughs> i can't there was there was one night where he went backstage and he knew there was a uh, there was a stagehand back there who was also a boxer in New York. By the way, not the guy to fight. A stagehand who was also a boxer. No. That dude's probably like, no, that dude can lift a car, yeah. you know. And Marlon wanted to box this dude. He like, I, I'm I'm going nuts. You know, I'm about to do this tele scene. I want to box. And so the guy's like, okay, fine. So he starts kind of like sparring with the guy, sparring, sparring with Marlon a little bit. And Marlon fucking popped him in the nose, like really punched the guy. So the guy's like, okay, well, if you want to do that, <laughs> so he, fucking, he like knocks Marlon Brando out. He like punches him right in the fucking nose, basically breaks his nose. Marlon Brando's blood is just like gushing from his face. And he has to go back on stage and he does the whole Stella scene with just like blood gushing from his nose. And apparently he got a big kick out of it. Marlon was very happy that that happened. <laughs> That's how... That's how nuts this dude is going, you know. Oh my god! But uh, but he had a contract, so he couldn't get out of it. He had a, he had a contract with this play, so uh, he was smashing dishes and wailing his soul out for a year and a half for the run of a streetcar named Desire, uh, during which they said his performances varied tremendously. You didn't know what kind of Marlin you were going to get on whatever night you went after the first, like, year. You know? Well, yeah, at that point, I'm sure he was like, I'm going to change it up. I'm going to do something different, you know? Yeah. Yeah. So, fuck it, I'm going to have fun with it. Today, I'm going to portray this as a chicken. You know? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, yeah, for sure. Which is actually part of his method was, like, different animals, you know? Who knows? Maybe he was was a chicken and one. Somebody got to see the chicken Marlin performance of streetcar is just like yeah oh man but but this was uh that was ultimately what led him to even consider doing film actually was doing streetcar a year and a half he started to think like fuck like i could go do a movie and i could be done doing stanley in a few weeks and then i don't have to sit here and do this every night for a fucking year you know um and that was that was where the wheels began to turn so in 1949, his contract was up on Broadway with Streetcar, 
and he had made a shit ton of money off of it. I couldn't find exactly how much he made off the play, but you can imagine it was a good deal of money. You know, I mean, he's he is he's sitting pretty at this point. He's free from his contract, and so to the disappointment of his Broadway family, he packed his bags for Hollywood, baby. He's going to the moving picture business. Woo. Yeah, and that is where I'm going to leave you on part two. Woo! I'm excited. I can't wait. This has been fascinating so far, and I can't wait to see just him get more unhinged. I want to see crazy just keep on crazying. Well, you know what will be the perfect fuel for that fire? Hollywood! Hollywood! (laughs) There's one place... When have we ever talked about crazy actors in Hollywood before? (laughs) If there's one place that's healthy for an already unstable person to go, it's Hollywood. It's Hollywood. It's either there or the psych ward, because that's the only other people that you're going to relate to. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) But that very much is going to be a thing. I mean, this guy goes to Hollywood with all of the uh, sentiments of Broadway and method acting and Stanislavski. You know, and... It, it, I see a new comedy. Brando goes to Hollywood. <laughs> Brando like, goes to Hollywood, like Ernest dude. Ernest goes to camp, but like Brando. yes, this is when you know we're gonna talk about it. Like when he gets there, and Bogey and Cagney and all of them are just like, "What the fuck is going on? What is this guy doing? You know, what is this? Like, what is? <laughs> what why is, is he this? crying in his trailer? <laughs> what is this? Why is he like crying in his trailer in the mirror? You know, before there's he no has to. There's no crying in baseball. There's no crying in baseball. Like, yeah, like this is a. A very new kind of scary thing to a lot of old actors and this is also what started this new generation of film actors to be these like emo kids you know like you think emo like, kids of the I, 50s you think like probably the biggest thing about it was like wait a minute you, i don't have to cry do i he yeah, cry, yeah, yeah yeah this for is sure mean, just because he's getting a lot of love doing this, don't make me cry i'm not a cry absolutely absolutely there were definitely uh, some old yeah robert meacham is like i'm not doing that <laughs> he's like, I'm, gonna, I'm gonna drink a bunch of scotch in my trailer and come out and he can do his crying thing and i'm gonna do uh what robert does you what know robert uh, does <laughs> what bob does you know what i'm saying <laughs> I, I, you know it's so funny you got like humphrey bogart and like a bunch of these other old uh actors who were actually in the war and shit that we talked about and then brando yeah. being like i don't know what i am why yeah that absolutely absolutely resentment there no absolutely he was coming in with like war vets and and film vets and just you know a very the film industry at the time was a very uh cut and dry kind of harsh environment and this dude is bringing like a poetic nature to it you know dude, <laughs> it's brandon brando goes to hollywood yeah dude the hump the hump Brandy. is there waiting brando goes to hollywood is our next uh television comedy maybe animated <laughs> maybe it's an animated saturday morning kids cartoon <laughs> It'll certainly be the the name of episode three and uh yeah I can't wait to tell you about it. This guy's career was just huge. It was insane. His film career was nuts and also he was insanely nuts. <laughs> um, and I'll, I'll who knows this might be a four parter, but I'll try to wrap it all up in three. Well, if, if but that'll be, wrap it up for part two yeah, today. If it needs to be four, let it be four. I, I, I don't want to. I don't want to be missing out on any crazy stories just for the sake of time. Yeah. So. Yeah. Uh, for sure. But uh, anyway. All right. Well, I need to. <coughs> 
chug some Dayquil Die. and become horizontal. So uh, <laughs> uh, I'll uh, go ahead and wrap it up with my uh, my plugs. You can find me on Instagram at Drake Cummings, on Twitter at Drake underscore Cummings, on TikTok at Hollywood Drake, uh, and just various other places around the internet. Just type my name in and just see what comes up. Uh, <laughs> Dev? Uh, I uh, awesome. I want to feel better, Drake. I, I'm sorry you feel like shit. Uh, I, I want to give a big shout out to Ian Beckles, former NFL player. I had the pleasure of doing his uh, show this past week to talk about madness. It's called the Plant Power Podcast, and I think uh, its segments are aired on terrestrial radio somewhere as well. But um, everyone should go follow Ian. He, he's awesome. He's a really big proponent of plant medicine and really good for an advocate who's a high-performance athlete. Uh, ex-Buccaneer player, like I said, and just all-around great guy. It has changed his life therapeutically and physically and, like, you know, for different ailments. And he's a good dude, very entertaining, and, and go check out his show. So thank you, Ian, for letting me come on and talk about crazy Tampa Reefer Madness history. Uh, you can find me at, at Dev on Twitter, Sailor underscore Dev on Instagram, or go check out our projects um, at abracadabra-films.com. Just Google African ever films. Hell yeah. Very cool. <clears throat> yeah, I'll have to go watch that interview, Deb. That sounds fucking awesome, man. Go Fuck go yeah. Bucks, baby. Go Bucks. <laughs> uh, you can find me at Jimmy DeLoyer or James Wyatt Scott, depending on where you're looking. Uh, you can find us at Film History, The History of Film, or FHHF Podcast. And uh, you can find us still on Patreon here and there. Something, something. <laughs> <laughs> we'll see. Maybe just cut that part out. We'll, we'll figure out something because we, we should do some free drops for the fans too. Even if they're like yeah. just some like, you know, cuts from other episodes or whatever down the road. We'll just, you know, you guys have been with us from day one. We love you. And, you know, we want to show that love. Yeah, for sure. And you can also find me in bed. Ready for you to put your cigar out somewhere on my body that my mother won't see on Monday. Ooh, my nipple. <laughs> and that's been Film History. <laughs> the, the History, history of Film. You know what I'm talking about.